Wow, great crowd in tonight. Thanks very much for coming. Week two of the Festival of Urbanism. And what a night tonight we're going to have. Is Sydney losing its edge? There's a long story there. Um, we're about to get into it. We've got two really um, entertaining speakers uh, that I'll introduce in a second. Um, before I do that, can I just acknowledge that we're having this lecture on Aboriginal land. This is the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. And I pay my respects to elders. Um, past and present. Okay, the way she's going to work tonight is pretty straightforward. Kate's going to get up here and um, what we call uh, talk. How would you describe it? Uh, talk, an uh, interesting conversation about her, her topic. Um, she is then going to sit down uh, and then Oliver is um, going to um, make some comments and respond. And Oliver and Kate are going to engage in an interesting conversation that you can... Um, Participate in. Okay, so we're very much um, interested in some from questions from the floor. We're uh, Kate loves an audience, um, and I've uh, Kate's got form at speaking at several previous um, events for the university, including a, a previous festival. Kate loves it when we get a bit of a debate and discussion going in the audience. Okay, so even if you don't uh, are not, not normally provocative. Tonight's the night. Okay, look, um, let me just give you a um, small introduction to our two great speakers tonight. Dr. Kate Shaw, who's come all the way from Melbourne, um, did I mention that word? Is a critical urban geographer at the University of Melbourne. She's very interested in the culture of cities and the political, economic and social processes that shape them. Um, one of the most interesting events we ever had here was when she was on the, shared the stage with several um, staff from Urban Growth. It just really went off that night. Her current focus is on urban planning and policy practice in urban renewal and their capacity to deliver social equity and cultural diversity, um, which is probably not the hallmark of uh, some urban renewal processes in this and other cities. She's Deputy Chair of the City of Melbourne's Creative Spaces Working Group, a member of the Victorian State Government's Live Music Roundtable. That would be an interesting meeting to go to. Um, advisor of the City of Sydney's Live Music Task Force and part of the International Network for Urban Research and Action. So I'm going to invite Kate up in a second, but let me just quickly um, say a few things about Oliver so we don't have to um, interrupt the stream by inviting him. Dr. Oliver Watts is a writer, practicing artist and cultural theorist. Oliver lectures um, in theory here at the University of Sydney in the Sydney College of the Arts. Now that's the college that's been in the, head, uh, the newspapers a lot lately. He writes regularly for The Conversation um, in Bureau 24-7 on cultural and aesthetic issues of the day from architecture to, to fashion. And I very much enjoy his writing in The Conversation. His work looks at how power and authority is reified in cultural artefacts. He sees buildings as particular, particularly as manifesting cultural history and ideology, social concerns, hopes and biases. So Oliver um, is um, going to talk after Kate. But without any further ado, can we give Kate a warm Sydney welcome to the Festival of Urbanism. Thank you. Thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. Um, <clears throat> now... The organisers want me to talk about Sydney's lockout laws. And look, really, I don't think there's much I can tell you that you don't already know. But I can make a couple of observations. The very well-documented negative of, of, of consequences of the policy clearly do not justify the successes of the policy, which themselves seem very limited. The various estimates of decreases in violent incidents, and there are different estimates that are clearly dependent on methodology and contested, 
But the, the, most of the estimates suggest between a 30% or 45% decrease in violence on the cross and a 20% decrease across the CBD. The, the figures from the Bureau of Crime Statistics and Research. Dr. Fulder from St. Vincent's estimates 25% across the city. By any count, these are not particularly impressive figures. If from 55 to 80% of the incidents the policy is trying to curb are still occurring, you'd have to say the policy is not very well targeted. So not only is this a very large sledgehammer, but it's off the mark in its swing. Less than half of the walnut has actually cracked. Now, there is an argument, I think, for limiting this blunt instrument to the beer barns and exempting live music venues and so on, but this is difficult to enforce, and it still, I think, creates barriers to a diverse and lively cultural scene. Melbourne had the good sense to abandon its lockout laws completely when it became clear after three months that the negatives were outweighing the positives. And one of the effects of this, of, of the complete abandonment, was to enable the continuity of the nuance um, in the Melbourne scene. There are big venues, medium venues, small venues, some with live music, some without, and all of them operating relatively unimpeded. So there is a flourishing of less conspicuous and less formal activities such as warehouse parties and street and park parties, events not even necessarily attached to licensed premises that are kind of flying under the radar because of this vibrant and, and, and very kind of active scene. I think in Sydney, these kinds of less formal activities, not established, or not, not linked to a, venue, uh, to, to a particular licensed venue or loosely associated with a licensed venue, but happening outside, for example. I think that that kind of um, activity would be a lot more obvious in Sydney and it would be very easily shut down. So what's happening in Melbourne is helped by the relatively relaxed administrative approach. And I say relatively. <clears throat> and I think that that was soothed somewhat by the very simple effectiveness of better policing in the notorious trouble spots, mainly King Street in the city, which is Melbourne's equivalent of the cross, um, but with fewer live music venues and more strip clubs. Um, it really has quietened down a lot with a stronger police presence and more serious adoption of the responsible serving of alcohol provisions. Wendy Squires put the difference between Sydney and Melbourne nicely in the age this weekend uh, when she said Melbourne treats its citizens as grown-ups whereas in Sydney you feel like a naughty child and the city has become one big crèche. Um, but Melbourne's status as a more mature and relaxed place such as it is is still precarious. Liquor licensing laws still require security on the door of the smallest venues and require the venues to apply to change this arrangement, which they're not always successful in. The battle to remove live music is a trigger for a 9B classification in the Building Code of Australia um, <clears throat> has been won. Um, a state variation to the regulations in Victoria allows um, venues to remain in the less restrictive Class 6 category, as is the case here too um, in, in New South Wales. 
But the basic standards in the BCA themselves are very high and getting higher, meaning increasing costs to open up any kind of venue. And then there's the sleeper issue of having to bring any existing venue into compliance with the current standards if substantial works are being done. So if an old venue with a 0.8 metre balustrade on the staircase is to be extended or upgraded, <clears throat> and this is throughout Australia, um, the old balustrade will have to be replaced by a new balustrade not less than one metre high. <clears throat> and some of the premises standards requirements will mean that the people who run existing small basement and upstairs venues simply won't be able to do much new work because the costs of the associated upgrades to the rest of the place are prohibitive. Which means they'll come become more run down and they'll become less safe as a consequence. The current Australian, Australian planning and build, building regulatory regime acts as a disincentive to improving conditions. So this brings me to what I really want to talk about, <laughs> and that is what happened to our larrikin, easygoing spirit that made Australians so much fun? We've been taken over by the risk assessment managers. My research takes me mainly to Canada and Germany. But for now, I just want to focus on Germany, although there are some interesting stories to be told about Canada as well if we get there, but just for the sake of time, because I don't want to talk all night, I want, I, I want to hear from you. Um, so I'll just focus on Germany, which is a highly regulated society with a strong state, comparable on many jurisdictional levels to Australia, but with a completely different approach to risk. So people can drink in public um, out of glass bottles, and there's this lovely culture in Berlin of people sitting on the riverbanks and, 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 and on bridges over the canals in summer and spring and autumn. The stone warms up during the day, the stone on the bridges, and, uh, and it stays warm after the sun sets. And people sit and lie on the stone and talking, having fun, little parties, supplied by kiosks nearby that sell beer and wine. Um, many of these stay open all night. The Germans call them ladies. Uh, and you don't see alcohol fuel violence or people falling off the bridges or even much broken glass. Empty bottles get a refund and people put them around the bins so that those who collect the bottles for the money can pick them up easily and they pass by regularly. So actually there's this really kind of interesting sort of cleaning thing going on. And in Copenhagen, interestingly, is Mike Harris, who I think is here or should be here, well, will be here at some point, um, or not. Um, as Mike showed me in Copenhagen, there are even little trays, little kind of you know, sort of ledges and trays around the bins um, so the bottles can be neatly arranged for the, for the, uh, for the, for the collectors. Germany has a set of national building regulations, like Australia, but with different standards for different kinds of buildings. Heritage buildings and temporary uses, for example, have fewer and lower requirements than new buildings. And there are many places that just really don't comply. The, um, <clears throat> the Dutch have a word for it, hedogen, meaning grey zone meaning a eh, little bit of a turn a blind eye. It doesn't matter too much. Life is dangerous, the night is dark and full of terrors. Um, but that was a reference to Game of Homes, Peter's session on um, <clears throat> Wednesday. Um, but you can't regulate everything. 
Um, and, 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 and this attitude, this Hedogan attitude, is mostly the kids can look after themselves. So they have these systems of contracts. Um, so I just, I love, I love, look at the pillars on that thing. I mean, you know, yeah, <laughs> probably going to fall over. Um, um, this, this, this is a, um, um, an arts precinct that is currently under development as a part of the Hafen City um, redevelopment project, which is Hamburg's answer to Barangaroo. Um, the, 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 the tenants in this um, precinct are um, <clears throat> on contracts with the Hafen City um, Development Corporation. And the contracts basically say, look, you know, you can have it and you can do what you want there, pretty much, within limits, um, but it's your responsibility. Um, so there's this kind of interesting kind of le le legal grey zone. If something were to happen, it would be very unclear what would be the consequences of that um, and whether these contracts that basically give the tenants full responsibility for their own safety, whether, whether they would actually stand up in, in, in you know, some kind of you know, international law. But they have been existing in this way for a long time and so far there haven't been any serious incidents. I just want to draw your attention to these fences. So you can see this fence here that kind of goes out onto um, railway land, uh, open railway land, and, and, beyond, and beyond that, that's great. And thank you. Oh, and, and beyond that is a, um, a, 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 an, empty, an empty old um, trains, train shed. Um, that, that, that fence would not be deemed compliant uh, in, in, in Australia. On the other side, there is a small fence here. Uh, there's a little bit of railway land and there is a highly active railway line with intercity high-speed trains running past. Has anybody jumped over this fence, run across there, jumped over that fence and been struck by a train? No. Um, here is a pool um, that people... Oh, so these photos are all taken during the day, of course, um, and, and, and they're occupied at night, so they all look empty, and that's because I don't want to get people in them and, and, and get them embarrassed. Don't know what they're doing. Um, <clears throat> but there's, 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 there's a pool that doesn't have a fence around it. Um, the, the children aren't... Uh, uh, not witnessed, um, you know, drowning because there isn't a, you know, a fence and a child-proof gate there. Um, alcohol is sold, two dollars, uh, two euro for, for, for vodka. It's, a, you know, I mean, it's, it's an amazing, funny place. Uh, and people have a great deal of fun there. These stairs um, that go down into that little area there are completely non-compliant uh, in terms of building standards, but it allows this kind of you know, a fun place to be set up. <clears throat> um, these are some of the old, um, unused, um, or, um, no longer used goods sheds and train sheds where all sorts of um, arts activity is going on. Um, <clears throat> again, do these, do, does that balustrade comply with German building law? Probably not. It doesn't really matter. The point about these low standards is that the places are very, very cheap. And inside, 
they are full of people doing really interesting stuff. There's woodworkers, furniture makers, uh, retro collectors and, and, uh, and, and, and recyclers. Um, there's a restaurant and cafe there, um, set construction uh, and, and, and storage, bars, a jazz club, um, and now we switch to a squat in the middle of the city of Hamburg called Gangerfiertel. Now, Gangerfiertel was this entire building complex was squatted and it was recognised as a squat by the city. Squatting has a certain kind of you know, quasi-legal status for a certain amount of time and then once it goes over a certain period and the city decides to recognise it, it can do that. Um, so the squat was recognised. The city bought the building um, in a complicated exchange because the, um, the owner was not developing it simply, uh, wasn't developing enough, uh, letting it run down, and the city had the capacity to actually just take it back from him, um, whether he liked it or not. They uh, compulsorily acquired it. Um, and now that the city owns it, there is going to be some um, renovation work to bring it up to the very minimum of the German building standards, um, but that is still a very, very low, um, uh, a low, um, a low bar. Um, and in the interim, and the city hasn't started doing work when these photos are taken, it's in full use. There's a theatre and a bar and a comedy venue and live music venue inside. There are holes in the floor. There are stairs that are missing. And the point of the approach of the squatters is they say, look, it's ours, we can use it as we want, take responsibility for yourselves and don't get anybody into trouble. <laughs> so, <clears throat> that sign, don't fuck your fearful. It's your fearful, your quarter. Um, interesting that that one's written in English. Um, <clears throat> the Germans get it. <laughs> it doesn't need to be written in German. What that German is saying is not even with graffiti. Uh, and, and if you want to do graffiti, there's a really good spot under the um, on, on the underpass on the underpass over, under the overpass. So go and do it there. <laughs> That's what that says. That sign. Um, now we're in Berlin. This is a bar, the Cater Bar, which is again on railway land under a railway bridge. Um, so you can see they've kind of um, built something of a fence above that, low, that, row, that row of hoardings um, and inside is kind of like a, an open area and a, a covered area bar. Uh, that the train company, Deutsche Bahn, is happy for the, um, the, for the kids to use. Vittrack, which is the company in Melbourne, in Victoria, that owns all of the railway land, has huge tracts of land that it won't let anybody into. <clears throat> Maybe car parking on big football days, that would be it. I mean, it's, it's and, 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 and this is, is, is just freely used land. Deutsche Bahn is happy to have the kids come in there. Uh, they don't pay any rent. Um, this is a, this is a, um, um, the bar of, um, in, in, in the front of uh, a co-op called Holtz Market, um, which some of you may have heard of. It's quite famous. They're, they're, um, <coughs> they're, they're building student housing um, and co-op housing. Um, there's a, 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 um, a, a cheap bar. 
uh, and a restaurant, uh, and it's a it's a nice party space. There's a lot of recycling. There's um, there's an environmental sort of movement and, and, and urban agriculture and so on going on. It's really quite a, a complex sort of arrangement. Uh, there's a kids' swimming pool and stairs without banisters and. Behind this log is a large hole in the ground which is used for fires at night, bonfires. So on a cool night, everybody sits around in those seats. Look at those piles of wood back up there. <laughs> and, and, and people are sitting around on the benches and talking and drinking with a great big fire in the middle of it. How lovely is that? Is that imaginable here in Australia? <coughs> Those girls are sitting down by the, um, by the river bank. There's no, there's no balustrade. Yes, they could topple over and they could go headfirst into the water, but they don't. Um, <clears throat> this, th this is a bit interesting. The building under construction is, is, is part of the student housing that they're building. Uh, and again, you can see there's just this low fence between the bar and party area and a construction site. Across the way, across the river, is another co-op called Spreyfeld, um, and it too is building uh, affordable housing uh, and co-op housing on the basis that, again, these low standards allow the, the, uh, the land to remain um, quite low in cost so that co-ops and, and, and organisations like these can actually get in. Uh, it's not just restricted to the most wealthy. Um, this is the beach uh, in front of Spreyfell, so we're now looking back uh, on the other side and, and um, uh, that, the, uh, that well, across the way, almost directly across the way, is, is, is Holtz Market. Um, there's a little staircase there. You can see from the, from the co-op that comes down to this beach. Uh, <clears throat> again, it's a staircase without balustrades. Um, it's public access. Anybody can come in from the main street and walk through the co-op and see what they're doing. And they have rooms for um, uh, meetings and and also they have a lot of um, they do a lot of work with the TU, um, that the, um, the technical university uh, in Berlin, looking at ways of cleaning up the the, um, the, the water quality in the river and and, and again um, more sort of urban agricultural um, efforts. Um, Still in Berlin, um, on the river, a little bit further down, here is a, a, a pool, <laughs> um, a, a pool in the river. Um, and people could just go down and lie around, and there's a, a low balustrade there. Um, people have a great deal of fun. And my final slide, <clears throat> this is a riverfront for people. Berlin and Hamburg have some very lovely places right on the riverbanks. They're low-cost overheads. They're cheap for people to access. I wonder whether <clears throat> if governments treat their citizens like children, the people act like children. I think it's time our politicians and policymakers took a long, hard look at the unintended consequences of their actions. That'll do it for the bit.
Okay, look, um, I'll just get Oliver on the stage in a second. I just wanted to, um, sorry, uh, I neglected to say at the start that we're um, partnering tonight for the festival with the um, Sydney Ideas. Um, that was uh, remiss. And um, on the way out tonight, there's a whole list of um, future Sydney Ideas events. So apologies. But um, Oliver, without further ado, further ado come up and um, feel free to... Have a spray in great festival tradition. Would you like to um, sit down? That, that would be... Thank you so much, Kate. Um, I'm a huge fan of Kate's work, and I don't know if that's one of the reasons why I was asked. I actually did bring a prop. This is an excellent book by Kate. Um, the book is real. The, um, the, the, the post-it notes are fake. But um, no, I, did, I really enjoyed all the case studies in there. They're fantastic. Though it is a bit old, as Kate mentioned. It's 2009. But I think all the case studies are amazingly relevant, actually. I really enjoyed the book. And Kate mentioned that it's just been translated into Korean. So um, you can read it in Korean as well. But what were you... Do you feel that you stand by that book now? Or? Um, the book's called Who's Urban Renaissance? Um, uh, an international... Um, an international <laughs> comparison of urban regeneration strategies. So it, it, it's, it, has, it has stories of urban regeneration from all over the world, um, um, starting off with some really pretty dire um, cases of, of rampant gentrification and, 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 and large-scale displacement um, of, of inhabitants. Uh, can you hear me? Is this... Yeah? Oh, uh, yeah, OK. Um, and, um, and, um, and, and, it, and it moves through to some better case studies where there is, again, nuance and, and, and real effort to uh, plan for diversity and equity. And it's, yeah. So, I mean, it's the background of the talk that you just gave, which was just unbelievable. It felt like going on a holiday to Berlin. Mm -hmm. and it reminded me of the last time I was there and that I want to get there again. Um, but it's interesting how you make that distinction between regeneration and gentrification. And it sounds like that your definition for that, which you can see in the slides that you showed, is displacement. So you're sort of saying in the slides that you've just shown that there is a diversity in these spaces that it wasn't displaced by gentrification. Yeah, indeed. Um, but, but, but also, I mean, the, the, you know, the main, the main kind of defining characteristic of gentrification, I suppose, is, um, is, is you know, this, this, this conspicuous transition in class character. You know, the, 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 the displacement of, of, of working class or, or, or low uh, income generating activities um, and replacement with, you know, high-end, high high um, uh, you know, <clears throat> often more consumption than production. Um, and, yes, I think that the most impressive parts of Berlin and, uh, and, and, and Hamburg in particular, um, and Copenhagen, I mean, the, I mean and, and, and Amsterdam and Rotterdam, I mean, there are a lot, there are a lot of um, cities, particularly in, <clears throat> in northwestern Europe, uh, that really understand that, that, that recognise that um, run-down, deindustrialized, devalued areas very often in public ownership or with the capacity for uh, state consolidation um, because of its low value, um, very, very immediate, um, and, and the capacity for, for leverage, for planning leverage, for the state to say, okay, you can come and build this if you provide, you know, these, these particular community benefits. Um, in, 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 in 
North and Western Europe in particular, governments understand that this is an opportunity to plan for the people rather than um, to extract maximum value out of the land uh, and, and, and enable transfer of that value to the private sector, uh, which is what we do pretty openly uh, in Australia. Mm, absolutely, and we can yeah. talk about that. And then the other thing that you're very um, uh, clear about, which also came in your talk, is the diversity of usage. And I think that that's a very interesting displacement that you talk about quite often. Um, you know, like in terms of... I mean, I always think about that in... Well, that's another question, but is there anything that you would like to say about... Like, how do you value usage? Mm. I mean, I guess that... I mean, we could talk about your talk, but I just thought I'd start with this because mm. it just seems to be a background of what you were talking about. Mm. Um, is the... I guess it's a, a different levels of value being put on it. So, you know, you've got commercial economic value and it just seems to trump everything, especially in Sydney mm. lately. Um, how do you sort of make that argument for that diversity of usage? Well, <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot of ways into this question, but <clears throat> the, work, the, the project that I'm currently working on is a comparison of, of, of urban waterfront developments. So I'm looking at, um, <clears throat> at Melbourne Docklands and Fisherman's Bend, if any of you mm. have heard of that, um, um, and, uh, and, and Sydney's Barangaroo and the, and, and, and the Bays Precinct. Um, and I'm looking at Vancouver and Toronto uh, and their waterfront developments in Hamburg and, and, and Berlin's. Um, and um, the, the, the main thing that I'm interested in is to what extent is planning for social equity and cultural diversity done. And as I was saying, I mean, <clears throat> the, peop the people in those cities see the opportunity for things that they need. What, what do all of those cities need? They need affordable housing. They need a more diverse form of employment. Um, <clears throat> um, they, they, they need places that have got meaning to them, uh, places with bookstores and record shops and, and shoe repairs and greengrocers and libraries and social centres and pubs and the, all of the reasons why we go out actually. Um, um, in terms of employment, um, there, there are, um, there's a whole sort of industry, particularly in the United States at the moment, that's sort of rebuilding those rust belt um, areas mm. of urban niche manufacturers. <coughs> I mean, we're familiar with them. So, you know, everything from, you know, recycling, electronic repair, bike shops, bike repairs, bike construction, um, um, artisanal Bakeries, microbreweries. You know, there's there's a you know there's a huge you know musical instrument manufacture. You know, it, it, it goes on and on, and and these kinds of employment they're not obviously replacing the old manufacturing jobs um, that were on those lands that have now all completely gone offshore, uh, or pretty much all, all you know there are still some on the urban periphery, um, but. Those sorts of jobs and all sorts of other industries, you know, mechanics and, 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 and uh, you know, panel beaters and so on. I mean, there is still call for those sorts of jobs. Where are they to be? I mean, they, 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 are, they either don't get created at all or they're on the periphery. Mm. So it's just about creating a diversity of jobs in terms of housing. When we're building luxury apartments, mainly investment product, um, on, our, our, on our glamorous waterfronts, we are not catering to local need. 
And people see that. Pe mm. People understand that this is a city that is not being made for them. Um, and, 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 and I think rightly they are angry. Um, and in, again, I come back to North, North and Western Europe because I think that there is a very long and serious tradition of public engagement uh, and, and discussion. Uh, and lo lots of voices are involved, and we can talk about that as complex. I mean, you know, coalition governments, for example, you know, shock horror in Australia. I mean, the, 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 they are commonplace. They're, they're routine. Most governments are, are in, you know, red-green or green-brown or, you know, whatever. You know, they're often in coalition governments. And there is a, a culture of respectful dialogue. Academics. Um, and researchers are, are, are taken seriously and invited to, uh, to, to, to talk to government and policymakers. I think, I think Australian politicians despise their academics. They don't want to hear from them, unless they're saying exactly what they want them to say. <clears throat> so it, you know, there's a lot of reasons for these different cultures, and I'm not suggesting that you can just kind of pick up <laughs> something, you know, I mean, we know a lot about policy transfer and policy mobility, and of, co and of course you can't just say, oh, look what Germany does, you know, why don't we do it here? Mm. Uh, but it really does, um, I think, give food for thought about just how closed down we're becoming. I mean, in terms of the, the context of the festival of urbanism, like maybe we can look at some urban planning models. Mm. So just to clarify, with these sorts of um, development, is that within a planning law sort of draft local plan or is it outside planning? This is, out, this is outside. Well, it's, I mean, they're, you know, they're, 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 house, they're sort of houseboat cafes um, and, and bars. Mm. Um, they're, I mean, they're, they're, cer they're, they're, certainly, they're certainly legal, mm. um, but again, um, this, this, this kind of arrangement, I mean, it's just, you know, a baby could stick their head through, the, through, the, um, through those bars, a, a, a full-grown person could stick their head through those bars, um, and, and, and so that would be uh, deemed illegal in Australia. You just wouldn't be able to do that. Um, in Germany, um, is it... Is it, is it compliant with the National Building Code? Not really. Um, but, again, there is room for discretion in the code, uh, and the local council, as the, administer, uh, the, the administrator of that code, mm. has deemed that it's okay. So it's legal. Right, and so, and maybe looking at some different models, so from what I understand in the United States, so in a place like New York or something, you know, in, in Sydney we really are sort of, we have a model where, you know, say, let's say Barungaroo, um, you know, that the whole site is given over to one de developer, in this case Lend-Lease, so that Lend-Lease has to build all the infrastructure, the parks, the roads, Whereas I believe in a number of American states, it's like it seems so traditional, almost seems like 100 years ago. I mean, if you go just near Barungaroo to the Miller's Point um, development of about 1910, 1912, after the bubonic plague when the government first took over, not only did they build the shops, the grocer, the butcher, and had this diversity of use, but architects were asked to design the butcher design for a grocer, design, you know, that they really put that into the plan. And then, you know, that you see Barungaroo now, 
and you see that the public... So anyway, the point is that the traditional way of doing it, which is still done around the world, is that it used to be that the government would pay for public infrastructure, perhaps a park or even the school or, you know, the local infrastructure, and then you would just sell off the lots to development. And that actually by setting up the park, you're already raising the value, so you could make an economic argument for that anyway. I, I note that somebody's made a similar argument in terms of the fast train going down to Melbourne, which may have made your trip easier, I'm not sure, but, but you know, that along the way that would make those regional hubs somewhere that developers would then come after that infrastructure is built. Is that a model that you've seen work elsewhere, that, you know, or better than this development model that we have in Sydney and Barangaroo and Darling Harbour? <clears throat> the, mo the models that almost invariably um, work best are those where the state maintains a, a pretty strong level of control. Um, if there is a, um, in, in, in a, a public-private partnership, they're very, very, very clear and um, in trans, in, in, you know, in, like immovable specifications, um, which again we're not very good at here. Um, but I mean, one, one of the mo one of the most inspired um, 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 approaches again, um, that I've seen was, again, in Hamburg, uh, where the state did not own all the land uh, on, on, on the harbour. It was in a sort of a mix of public and private ownership and private leases. And Harfen City Corporation, which was set up by the, by the city, so it's a wholly owned city entity, um, um, approached very quietly uh, the private leaseholders and uh, some private owners and acquired that land at very low cost. Now, they got into a lot of trouble for this. It's really quite an interesting story because, of course, people were saying, well, you're, you're preparing this you know, wonderful, huge, whatever, public project uh, and, and you're doing it, on the, you know, do, doing it in secret. And so there was this... <laughs> the German debate's pretty tough. So there was mm -hmm. a lot of people coming out saying, you know, how dare you, this is all happening behind closed doors. But it was, it was a brilliant strategy because, of course, the prices were still very low. So by the time the, um, the corporation was ready to actually start developing the land, they had the entire waterfront in state... Uh, you know, in, in, in state possession. So Amazing. then it was a case of, of, um, of they, could, they could get built what they wanted. Um, again, I mean, there's, you know, they're still, they're still operating in a highly kind of neoliberal political context. There's still a huge imperative or, or, or a push to privatise and to allow the private sector to make as much money as they can out of it. But there are specifications all the way through it at, to the extent that if a developer doesn't within two years start building um, precisely what was agreed to, half the city will buy it back at cost. Right. Yeah, no, 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 no discussion. So, I mean, the, the, I think part of the problem in Australia is that we have this kind of terrible fear that, that you know, intervening in the market is illegitimate uh, and, and that um, the developers are going to pack up their bags and go somewhere else. I mean, the thing is, where are they going to go? I mean, Australia is one of the safest economies in the world at the moment. Uh, and, and, and our reluctance to exercise, you know, and, and, and exercise leverage is, is really quite extraordinary. I think I just went off on another rave. No, did I love that. Did I, I love your <coughs> raves. Um, but also, just just um, beg the question for me: How do you intervene? Well, how would you? How would we accept? I mean, the the polis, the government intervening in 
already functioning suburbs? How, how, you know, like, so not just you know, big developments, but how would you advise... So, for example, personally, it's just a personal point, is that I did get chucked out of my art studio that was in Surrey Hills a couple of years ago. Then they sold it back to the market as an artist studio. And then they kept so, our... So and they stole our idea, which was that we had a 1-119 Kipak Street address. And I think in a sort of Berlin move, we renamed it 8 Lacey Street, which didn't exist in the post office, but it just sounded better. It was the lane on the side. Yeah. So they would come in straight through the roller door. And the postal service did deliver to 8 Lacey Street. We had a huge 8 on the, <laughs> painted on the wall. Um, but how would you intervene... You know, when you see gentrification happening generally through market forces, mm. and Sydney is a very high... You know, property market. What, what sort of interventions would you have you seen work in other case studies along those lines? Well, I mean, I always say that I mean the cure the cure to gentrification is eliminating the prop the capacity to profit from land sales. But 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 I mean, more realistically. Yeah. Um, there are lots of different kinds of interventions made around the world in terms of providing um, stable and secure and affordable housing for a start. Um, whether it's through community housing, public housing, different kinds of social housing, um, co-ops, rent controls. I mean, it's really, it's really very interesting, again, to look at the way that those kinds of ideas get rejected in Australia. I mean, rent, rent controls are routine, not just in many European cities, but in many American cities, the great land of the, you know, of, of, of the free market. Um, so, so all of those strategies help. Um, I've recently written... A, paper where I argue that that's not sufficient um, and, I, and I talk about a process of um, <clears throat> displacement um, of sense of place mm. um, and, and it was through, um, I had a wonderful Dutch um, uh, master's student who interviewed <coughs> the uh, tenants of long-term secure community housing uh, in St Kilda and Fitzroy uh, in Melbourne which are two of the sort of most gentrifying areas of the inner city and, and talk to them about, you know, the, the loss of services and, and, you know, where do they go, where do they shop, uh, where do they meet their friends, um, how do they feel going into the renovated pub <laughs> around the corner. And mm. it was really very, very clear that where uh, affordable um, recreational places uh, remain as well, uh, and where affordable shops are, and I have to say, there is an argument for the supermarkets. Um, in fact, Coles is, is a really kind of fantastic um, space for you know for, for, for the for the oldies particularly to hang out. You know, it's, mm. it's, it's heated, it's 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 air conditioned, it's, um, it, there's lots of nice seats, and if it's well managed, <laughs> it's act, it's actually you know it's actually quite a nice sort of you know. Absolutely. Um, so, so, so social place. So, I mean, you need to look at these other factors as well. Um, and, and, and that's something that cities that are concerned about um, gentrification and do want to intervene need to have regard to. It's not just the housing. You need to actually have the places where you can hang out and go and, and you know, keep the services. You know, the community health centres, the legal services and so on as well. I agree. I, re I read a very interesting study about how in the States um, a lot of communities use McDonald's. Yeah. 
to yeah. for yoga even. I mean, you know, to have social media, yeah. but all sorts of things, yeah. games, leisure, yeah. because the toilets were clean. Yeah. And going back to maybe your talk, and maybe we can go back to that, yeah. because they didn't feel judged there. Yeah. Yeah. So that all the other <laughs> controlled spaces, so maybe the, you know, the old people's home that they were at or you know, in the public housing that they were in, mm. they always felt they were being watched and surveyed, yeah. but they felt freer in the McDonald's. That's interesting. And so that, yeah, the McDonald's all around was a very important aspect of their lives. Yeah. I mean, it's still obviously because of lack of other opportunities. I mean, if, mm. if, 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 if Maccas and, 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 and Coles have become the only place where you know, people can go for, you know, to... Mm. to, to, to buy cheap food and, and hang out with each other and feel welcome, then, you know, that's a kind of a comment in itself, isn't it? But, but yeah, there's, but there's certainly... It's, there's, there's always a lesson to take from, from, you know, all of these things that we look and, at. And I might yeah. just return, because I think it is a really important thing about the controlled rent. And, and you know, we've just seen it in Miller's Point um, with the serious building is about to be demolished. And you just... To my mind, you couldn't think of a better example that could be used for essential services. I mean, if... if Politically, it can't be used for public housing, which I think it should be. But even if, you know, those, that area would be just absolutely perfect for rent control or essential services or any of those ideas. And it is amazing. I mean, I'd like to know more, but maybe we don't have time to sort of go into why Australia didn't take that up. I mean, I have a, a novelist aunt in Berlin... Um, who never dreamed of owning a property or buying a property her whole life. And her mother, even when she came here in the 80s, just thought all Sydney-siders were Kleinerberger, was her term for it. The way that every dinner party she went to, we'd talk about property prices and whether we'd bought the house or not. But, yeah, in, you know, in Berlin, there's not a dream of owning a house. It's just not even part of the yeah. discourse. Yeah, and, and, and there's, there's a complicated relation there. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, in, in essence, I think it relies on two things. F f first, firstly, there are um, a lot of institutional investors in the housing market. And actually, just as an aside, and I will come back to that point, but when we were talking about diverse housing options, I think one of the other problems that Australia really does have is, is, is a lack of finance for alternative housing options. It's very difficult to get finance for co-op, for community mm, land trusts. Sure. You know, you've got to have the title, you've got to have the equity, you've got to be able to show to the bank um, that you've got equity. Uh, so, so the whole um, co-op model that exists throughout Germany and Switzerland and, and, uh, and, 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 um, and the Netherlands in particular, and Scandinavia, is, is, is impossible because you can't get finance um, to, buy, to buy a share in a co-op. Um, or it's very difficult to do That's so. That's absolutely true. I just actually <clears throat> did go into a co-op. Yeah. And the only way that you could go in is if you didn't take out a mortgage. Because if you were in, a, right. in, if you were in yeah. a group mortgage, uh, yeah. you would be, you'd owe on the other person's mortgage. That's so right. you actually have to buy outright is the only way that you can do a co-op. Yeah. So but, one of mm. the arguments that I've been making for a long time is our super funds. Our, our super funds have trillions mm. of workers' money uh, in them. And, and, and indeed, the members of the super funds, and particularly the union industry, you know, union super funds, are people who need affordable housing. Um, so, so, I mean, really, there needs to be legislative change at the Commonwealth level to require super funds to invest a very small percentage of their portfolios. Not allow them, require, because the problem is that some super funds say they wouldn't mind doing that. Um, but they have to be competitive, uh, and, and if everybody's not doing it, then they can't do it. 
No, no, that's okay. That's good. Um, so, so um, yeah, I mean, but you know, like, I mean, 0.1% of, of, of every superannuation fund's um, portfolios going into um, financing low-cost affordable housing and different kinds of models would, mm. would, would almost solve Australia's housing problems. Um, so it's not just a case of um, investing in different kinds of models, but also investing in social housing, which is a, a low, steady rate of return. It's, 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 low, it's low risk, it's, it's, it's low return, but it's guaranteed in, in, in essence. Um, and actually the, the, um, the pension funds in Europe really love um, investing in social housing because the rent, is, the rent stream is guaranteed. Um, through through the through, through the benefits system, so it's you know it's, it's one of the safest um, options around. Mm. So to come back to that whole, um, uh, I mean, the 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 presence of the institutional investors in the housing market, with that slow state of of, of slow rate of return, is one thing. The fact that it eliminates churn in the market because there isn't this constant buying and selling and in, in, in the pursuit of capital gains means that the market is very stable. Then in turn, that is supplemented by tenancy protections, mm -hmm. um, which, which um, allow people to have very secure long-term leases, well, indefinite leases, and it's very difficult to evict people. Um, if they're paying rent and, 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 and doing everything properly. Uh, you certainly can't sell a house or, or a place with vacant possession. You can't, you can't turf out the tenant and then and sell it empty. You have to sell it with the tenant. Um, and so, of course, that then creates good tenants. I mean, and again, mm. it's not dissimilar to my argument that I was making earlier. I mean, culture and policy creates culture. Mm. It's, so, so you create good tenants. You create tenants who do want to stay in that place. That, in turn, becomes an asset for the long-term investors, and you get a complete change in the market. And again, what we have is not only this desire for quick capital gains and so, therefore, a great deal of churn, but tenancy protections that are so incredibly weak that it's possible. Um, so, and then nobody wants to rent. Mm. Why would you? Um, uh, although that is starting to change. It has to change. And, and again, our laws and our policies um, around that need, need to change as well. We, again, we need to look at the unintended consequences of, of, of encouraging mum and dad investors mm. and, and of, of course, of negative gearing. I've got one more question to open to the floor. But going back to your talk, which I found really um, um, very interesting about risk assessment and because I, I did actually, I felt that around the lockout laws. I think I used the word infantilising, that we were infantilised by those laws. Um, and one of the, uh, there's a, a great writer, I hope he's here, but it's Kane Race at our Cultural Studies Centre at Sydney Uni, actually talked about how you need risk to teach, especially young men, how to share space. And so you can, I felt in all those um, images that you showed how well people share, that the strong sense of friendship and the society, that, and I remember that from Berlin. But I, I, I just, I, I remember, anyway, I wrote this article and everybody in risk assessment left comments on the page, and I know you're never supposed to read comments, but it was sort of, the answer was, if I can save one life, then we've won. And it's sort of like, and it was just, you know, like, so all the value of social value, aesthetic value, you know, um, you know, 
friendship, you know, all those things were sort of, it was always if we can save one life, you know, and it's so hard to argue against, which actually ended up being the discourse around the lockout laws. We're saving lives and you're creating a creative space for people to drink. And it's sort of like, it was, I found it very difficult to argue for the point. So any rhetorical help in the, the you know, the discussion around yeah. risk is, would be very helpful. Yeah. Well, I, look, I don't know how, how helpful it is really, but <clears throat> I mean, my, 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 my view of it is, um, well, close, close, close all bars. Um, and, and, you know, part, part of the problem, of course, with, with, um, with you know, alcohol fueled violence and, and the whole kind of, you know, um, heavy drinking thing of, of Australia's is, is that, um, is, you know, kids, kids, kids are, are um, filling up before they go out. Okay, ban alcohol. That's going to work. Mm. Um, concrete the bush. We won't have any more bushfires. Mm. I mean, it's, you, we can't control everything and and again <clears throat> i think that this idea of personal responsibility give somebody a contract to do things differently see how it goes um it's yeah and it's because those voices don't have political purchase i mean every shock jock was against the art you know like the, there was sort of you know the drinkers the young the the youthful exuberance like you know they need to be controlled i mean that's right. The, 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 moral, the moral panics that have been with us right. from okay. the beginning of time. Okay. And we don't have to pander to them. Yeah. Maybe... Uh, yeah. In the planning arena? Maybe just wait for the microphone because then we can have a recording. Thanks. Uh, I work in the planning arena and I'm involved in trying to get approvals for such as warehouse parties. I'll give you a classic example in Marrickville, if you know that, that neck of woods in Sydney. Mm -hmm. and, so, and I'd like you to make a comment, if you wouldn't mind, in relation to how this happens. Let's leave Copenhagen and Berlin and Budapest out of the picture because they are a little bit different. How does Melbourne deal with, apart from the local government um, risk assessors or compliance officers turning a blind eye to it. What we found here in Sydney is that in some councils, say in the inner west, I'm able to persuade them to turn a blind eye to it for a very short period of time, unofficially, a couple of days, a week. But if you want that activity to survive, how has Melbourne dealt with it if they want it to last longer? They turn a blind eye. Or a month. Or Indefinitely. Indefinitely. Yep. I mean, the, most of the warehouse parties are um, in, in Brunswick. Not, not so much the parties, because parties are made in Brunswick. Yep. Right. You know, twice. Um, oh, well, a, com a comedy store or a venue. Um, uh, well, the argument that's going on at the moment is that we need to make um, access to um, planning and liquor licensing and building um, advice as painless um, and as efficient as possible. Um, there are arguments for certain kinds of uses um, attracting a different fee 
uh, scale, uh, and, and again, reducing the costs as much as possible. Now, Melbourne doesn't do that very well, but as it happens, John Wardle um, here is, is, is in the audience. He's the coordinator of the live music office, the National Live Music Office. And he was just telling me earlier today about some very interesting stuff that's going on in Adelaide that speaks specifically to this point. So, <laughs> just dropped you in it, John. Um, would you would you like to here? You can have my you can have my microphone and and and, and you and the planner can have a discussion because it's pretty interesting what's happening in Adelaide. Amazing. Very very interesting what's happening in Adelaide. In fact, if you're in Wollongong, their development assessment team have guidance. In fact, there might even be a seminar on tonight where you can go and get planning assistance from council. Uh, look, South Australia has completely rewritten the book this week in better regulation of uh, low-risk live music performance and creative industry spaces. They did the building code last year, set up a new um, small arts venue classification in the National Construction Code. If you're, or we did it, 300 square metres, ground floor or first floor or basement, then you are classified as class six under the National Construction Code. Very similar to what Yolan Stone over here did in the SEP in 2007 from the Department of Planning, curiously. So they've adopted the New South Wales Assembly Building variation. There's a new small arts venue classification, exempt development in the planning system so that if you are low impact live performance, like other exempt development, putting an ATM in a newsagent or a ramp or a signage or a garden shed, that arts and cultural activity that complies with those specifications isn't going to be, de isn't development. There is a single point of contact to be established in Adelaide City Council and you can't I mean, this is what you can achieve with the coordination of a state government and a capital city. We really need in New South Wales to achieve this, Macquarie Street and Town Hall to work hand in hand. Now, there's, there's case management on building, planning and liquor licensing to work together. We're having a throw at a BYO liquor licence and that's a recommendation from the current review of the Liquor Act so that if you're setting up a new small uh, entertainment venue... You can get a BYO licence, so you're focusing, you're refocusing on the performance. So many people are running small bars and restaurants and nightclubs, they didn't want to do that. They wanted to put on a show, so to refocus on the arts and cultural presentation and people just bring their own booze, the way the, night, the, the underground scene works, the way 505 used to work in this town. Um, look, I'd encourage everyone to have a look at what South Australia are doing, the 90-day change streamlining live music and performance regulation. It's just completely rewritten the rule book. Yeah. That was fantastic. Oh, you've got, you've got one already? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there's still a long way to go, but I, I, I mean, you know, who, who, who knew? <laughs> there's Adelaide leading the charge. Um, and and, and, and Sydney, Sydney and Melbourne can both, uh, and, and Brisbane and, and the other cities can learn a lot from that. But that one-stop shop, that, that single point of contact within the council who can deal with all of those different issues can really pave the way for um, getting, getting, getting the licence and getting the approvals and reducing the costs. Now, that's not addressing your point about the warehouse parties 
particularly. And, that, and that's part of the problem. I mean, what, I mean, what, what, what a ridiculous system that we have that, that a, a, a clearly more benign um, and less dangerous use has to go through these extraordinary hoops to, to get the, the, the classification of the change of use. And this is what I'm saying. The building and the planning uh, regime make it really, really difficult for what most German... Um, policymakers would look at and say, what's the problem? Mm. I mean, I might... I might yeah. Yeah. Um, just, just to change the topic a bit, uh, to first in observation, I've, I, was, um, I, I visited Germany quite a few times when I was there earlier this year, and those sorts of spaces are fantastic, but that, um, uh, the, the concept of relaxed standards also applies to the cigarette, cigarette smoking in those places. You invariably end up with the table next to you puffing away in... in um, traditional German style. Yeah, they do. And, and, uh, immediately underneath the no-smoking signs, too. Yes. Yeah, love it. Um, but that, that, that's what happens in a land where they still have um, smoking ads in you know, public places all over the city. Yeah. But I just want to play um, devil's advocate a bit here, and I, I do this and um, preface my comment by saying my, my wife's an artist. So I've got, but I was fascinated by a, 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 a recent news story about a... Um, working-class district in Los Angeles called Boyle Heights, which has basically decided, or the committee's decided to chase out art galleries <coughs> on the um, grounds that they were the harbinger of, of gentrification um, and that they, um, they represented not the, not the sort of bold-faced gentrification we have where we just chuck people out and, you know, sell the houses one underneath them and put pensioners out in the street, but a softer form where it makes the area more attractive to the, the middle class and, uh, you know, it, so suddenly middle-class hipsters feel, oh, well, we can perhaps go and live here. Um, what, what do you um, think about that, that e example and, and how, do you, how do you deal with that? How do you stop that sort of... Um, how do you keep that mix without sort of going to that, to that um, extreme? It, 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 look, again, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, the argument gets really, really tough in Berlin um, where... Uh, there are some people who argue that squatters are the thin edge of uh, gentrification, um, and you know, I mean, the, and, the, and they talk about these, you know, these punks with their tats and their dogs moving into these empty places and and, and, and terrorising the, you know, the very elderly Turkish residents of, of, of these run-down flats in Kreuzberg, uh, and so they say that's the, that's the thin edge of the wedge of gentrification. I mean, I think it, look, it doesn't. I mean, wherever wherever you you see that edge as being, I don't I don't I don't think it's that it's that sharp edge that's the problem. It's mm. how you manage the process, um, and and as long as you can uh, develop protections for the people who are going to be disadvantaged um, through that process, then you can manage it. And 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 you know, I mean, I think that there's a, 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 a certainly a role for for you know. Lo local local autonomy. If there if there's a, if there's enough of a, a strong feeling around Kreuzberg that that um, you know, the, the the process should be managed much more um, strenuously than in LA and and much more strenuously there than than here. You know, I mean, so so be it. I mean, viva la différence. Um, so yeah, I mean, that that's that's a local political issue, really. Um, but the thing is that the politicians and the policymakers should be open to talking about it. And working it through. Yeah. I mean, that's what Kate's works... That's why you put so much emphasis on the idea of displacement. 
you know, that, that, that difference between regeneration, you could have regeneration, I'm, I'm trying to speak up for the artists, um, but you could have regeneration that didn't displace. You know, like we talk yeah. about the artist, you know, that gentrification is almost yeah. a given, you know, if you leave it up to commercial interest. But yeah. what you're saying is to stop it or to intervene at some point. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, there's a lot of places that are run down that need reinvestment. Uh, mm. And so we make the distinction in, in that book um, between, like, well, I mean, it's, it's a spectrum, isn't it? It's, you know, it's, it's a zone. It starts off with, 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 with reinvestment coming back into a disinvested area. It can go through, you know, a, a regeneration process that may or may not become gentrification depending on how it's managed, indeed, and, how, mm. and, 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 and to, to what extent people are displaced. They don't have to be displaced no, that's right. um, physically or... You know, sens sensually and psychically. Thank you. Um, thanks. I'll, I'll just briefly preface uh, my, my question with uh, uh, a little anecdote. Uh, uh, Ira Glass, the host of This American Life, the American radio program, was just in Melbourne and Sydney recently doing a performance that he's been doing for the last three years, World Tour. And apparently after the show he spoke to uh, Daniel Andrews, the Victorian Premier, and uh, mentioned the fact that originally the World Tour was meant to enter the Sydney Opera House, which he thought... Ira, it was highly appropriate, but uh, Daniel Andrews was rather horrified at the fact, and uh, fortunately, at the last minute, they added London to be the last show after Sydney. He said, oh, thank God, it'd be so inappropriate and embarrassing if your wonderful show ended up in that barren cultural wasteland that is Sydney. And I don't know if he's being ironic or not. I'm never sure with these things. It's, it's nice to see you wearing your de rigueur Melbourne black there. It's nice to see the stereotypes still. Actually, do you know, I looked at myself in the mirror a few weeks ago and said, I just shouldn't wear black anymore. But then I thought, I'm coming to Sydney. I can't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I so, hardly ever wear black, actually. Yeah. Well, so my, my question basically is sort of about those cultural stereotypes about Sydney and Melbourne. But the, the basic differences uh, in terms of the... The fact that Melbourne uh, developed with the more regional cultural hubs, whereas Sydney tends to be more concentrated around... Most of the cultural activity happens around the city in the inner west, you know, Newtown, Balmain, etc., and maybe parts of the, the lower North Shore. Um, and there's very little out west, which makes it very difficult when the Sydney Festival tries to, you know, introduce stuff out west. It's very hard for it to gain traction, which is why they've tended to retreat at times back into the, the comfort of the inner city area. So I just wanted to ask you what you thought about uh, ways that maybe Sydney could actually extend itself. Um, you need some kind of cultural aggregation. I mean, obviously, all pearls start with a little grain of sand that acts as an irritant and everything hopefully uh, coagulates around that and uh, aggregates around that. So just wondering if uh, maybe Oliver might want to pitch in on this um, because we have like our RSL and leagues clubs, licensed clubs, which are, seem to be the main form of entertainment for most people. And a lot of the people, I live in the western suburbs, they don't come into the city and they don't find a reason to come, come into the city. Um, and as a result, they have limits put on what they have access to. There are very few, a few regional arts centres which don't tend to have a lot on and the local government is uh, tending to eye them for their real estate value. In many cases, a few of them be knocked down already. So I just thought if you had any ideas about possible strategies, sorry, going on a bit, possible strategies about uh, um, uh, developing the Melbourne model here. Um, look, I think that the RSL clubs and the old working man's clubs, I mean, they, they're, they're a fantastic resource. Um, and it's, again, it, it, it's interesting that 
those sorts of venues in the Army and Navy clubs um, and the bowling clubs too in Melbourne are some of the most important um, meeting places for the old um, long-term residents of, of, um, of, of community housing in these gentrifying areas. And I think they're really underutilised in Sydney. Um, so, look, you, you, you guys can answer this question better than me, but I mean, I think you have an amazing resource there and I'm, and I'm, and I'm not sure why it's not, they're not put to better effect. And indeed, um, they're scattered all over Sydney. I mean, we have, we have venues out in, you know, in Oakley and, and, and you know, there's, there's, a, there's a wide distribution of venues. It doesn't have to be clustered, hmm. but I'm sure... Oh, I don't... Oliver I'm sure that's right. No, not at all. I mean, we are, I think, in the visual arts, um, there have been, you know, Par Parramatta Studios have got something opening next week, the big event, um, Campbelltown... I mean, uh, there has been a lot more uh, money going out, but I mean, yeah, more can be done. There's no doubt about that. W would you? Sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And maybe we'll, we'll maybe discuss after. So the last question. Yeah. Um, two things. One, the. State government doesn't seem to listen to local community objection to development so that in the inner west we've got central to Everly, Waterloo and other vast housing projects that will turn into the slums of the future because the design strategies are too dense and in some cases there's a... a there isn't a need to give everybody cross-ventilation in their home in a climate like Sydney where you spend most of the year with your windows open. So how do you stop A, bad development and B, gross development? Simple one, do we with? <laughs> you arc up, you get active, it's in your hands. It's not going to happen without people getting very, very, very annoyed and making it clear what they find acceptable. That's how change happens and how the, 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 Ger the Germans have maintained such a good um, system in the last 50 years because they realise they have to speak up. Oh, maybe can I, sorry, can I just do one in extension? Because um, it, it was a question that I had too, which totally is... How do you speak up for aesthetic value? I'm, you know, like, but I'm sure there are a lot of architects in the room, not just urban planners, and there's artists. It, it just seems, you know, have you seen good versions of that where you, where, I don't know, that the aesthetic value just seems so hard to, like good design seems so hard to sell, politically sell, but you don't think it is, will you? I don't agree. Yeah. Um, I, actually, actually, I think I, I think that these days governments are much more willing to engage with questions of design than they are of use and size. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I think you start you start <laughs> you start with the function and the form follows. Anyway, I'd like to um, thank Kate. Or do you want to do that? No, Peter? no, no. Go right ahead. I mean, please. I'm a huge fan of Kate, and I love. Uh, thank you so much for your talk, and thank you so much for your questions. And maybe everyone can join me in thanking Kate for coming all this way. Thank you.